Hi everybody, Liam here. Just a few quick notes before jumping into today's episode. First of all, a lot of people have been asking me about when my historical boat tours are coming back. And the answer is in about three months. I'll be announcing the spring 2020 dates for the Richmond and Oakland trips through my newsletter in the next few days. You can sign up to get that at my website, eastbayyesterday.com. And while you're there, if you can afford to make a donation, I would be so, so grateful. The amount of donations coming in lately has really slowed down, which is not good for my ability to keep making this show. If you want more East Bay Yesterday, please kick down a few bucks. It means everything to me. And to those of you who are already supporting the show, you're awesome. I'm going to personally thank some of my new patrons during the end credits, so stay tuned for that. Okay, so you might have already noticed that this is a pretty long episode. Well, it could have gone on a lot longer, because my guest this week, longtime East Bay journalist Roland DeWalk, has just written a book called American Disruptor, The Scandalous Life of Leland Stanford, and it covers so much territory. Here's a little overview of what you're about to hear. We start out by talking about the momentous decision to establish the terminus of the Transcontinental Railroad right here in Oakland. It's impossible to imagine what Oakland would look like today if this hadn't happened. So we talk about the context that led to this transformational event. And then we delve into the story of the railroad itself and the men behind it, specifically the railroad's longtime president, Leland Stanford. We also spend a bit of time talking about the undeniable parallels between the railroad's ruthless business practices and the culture of big tech today. The reason for that conversation is because Silicon Valley is having such a tremendous impact on the East Bay right now in so many ways. So I think it's important to understand the the origins of this dynamic. And if you look at the roots of Silicon Valley, well, Roland DeWalk makes a pretty strong case that you can trace a lot of big tech's DNA right to Leland Stanford and the university he founded. Oh, and we end the interview with a murder mystery. So don't miss that. One more thing, and then I promise we'll get to the interview. Some of you will remember that the terminus of the Transcontinental Railroad was on my long-lost Oakland map, that poster that I made with T.L. Simons last year. There was a whole mini-series within this podcast about different features of that map, but I never made an episode about the railroad, so this is sort of the unofficial Chapter 7 of the Long Lost Oakland series. If you want to hear chapters one through six, you can find them all at eastbayyesterday.com. And if you want to buy the map, you can find it at Wolfman Books in downtown Oakland, right across the street from Tribune Tower. All right, here's my interview with Roland DeWalk, the author of American Disruptor, out now on UC Press. Pick it up at your favorite local bookstore. I 
think you do a great job of kind of painting a picture of what it was like to live during these various eras that you that you cover in the book. Uh, for example, when Stanford, Leland Stanford was a young boy, you write that um, being able to read was less common than dying of tuberculosis or typhoid, which I think is a very uh, vivid way of kind of putting things in perspective. And I find it really interesting that the, the same year that Stanford arrived in California, 1852, was the year that Oakland was officially incorporated as a city. So, you know, when we're talking about the gold rush in California, we hear a lot about San Francisco and these gold mining towns up in the hills. But you don't really hear a lot about what the East Bay was like during that era b before the Transcontinental Railroad was established here. So can you paint a little bit of a picture of what Oakland and the East Bay was like during that time? Well, in many ways, you could look at it sort of as a Malcolm Margolin, the Ohlone Way kind of idyllic existence where it was a big bucolic plain of many, many oaks. The name Oakland was not just serendipitous, but it really was because the, the, the loamy, uh, dark, fertile plain of the, uh, the, the Bay Plain, if you will, into Oakland had hundreds, thousands of majestic oaks. And if you also go up into the hills, the uh, East Bay Hills were a deep redwood forest. A, really a beautiful, idyllic existence from that standpoint. On the other hand, we have to also remember in 1852, this was just a very small, if I can use a fancy French word, entrepot, just a little, a little port uh, that it meant to nothing. There might have been a wharf or two. We don't have a census, Liam, from 1850, but we do have census figures from 1860. So Oakland was all of, in 1860, 1,500 people. And many of them were kind of, shall we just say, not of the greatest reputation. We had a lot of people who were uh, here just to squat. They just uh, came down here to look for gold, but found out that there were the Peralta brothers who had these big land grats had div uh, divided into four sections. And it was really hard to get rid of them. They would just you know, put down a tent, and after a while, the court said, well, if possession is nine-tenths of the law, and you can stay here. So there was a lot of crime as well. Right. There was a lot of, uh, there were no sewers. There were no paved streets. In the summer, the dirt roads would just kick up pounds and pounds and pounds of dust. In the winter, the mud would be two, three feet deep sometimes. Not always the idyllic version that uh, we'd like to imagine of that time era. Yeah. Fast forwarding then to when the Transcontinental Railroad actually does get connected. A metaphor that's often associated with it is this was the moon landing moment of, of the, the 1860s. But arguably, the Transcontinental Ra Railroad was even more important than the moon landing in terms of like actual impacts on people's lives. Uh, you know, most of us haven't gone to the moon, but we've all consumed goods that have you know, moved on trains or ridden in trains ourselves. And one of the biggest impacts that the Transcontinental Railroad had on the country was making it easier for people to get from the East Coast and the Midwest to the West Coast. You write that before the railroad, settlers saw the bones of dead fellow emigrants scattered across the plains and desert floors after wolves had dug up the graves and ripped apart corpses. Quite a uh, intense view as you're making your way to your new home. But then after the completion, you write that what had taken months of hellish overland travel now took about a week in relative comfort and safety. So besides the kind of practical effects of making this travel easier and safer, the railroad also had a huge symbolic impact on the country. So can you tell me a little bit about what that meant for the American psyche um, to have this railroad finally open? 
You have to remember, this is the era of the Civil War. This is why they rushed to this contract, this rather disreputable contract, with the big four as we know them now, Stanford, Hopkins, Huntington, and Crocker. Of course, Stanford being the head of that group. But they wanted to tie the nation together. It was falling asunder. We talk about the huge split in America today, but it's nothing compared to what you're looking at with the Civil War. And it's not only the secession of the South that was of great measure of concern to them, but you have to remember there was a Mormon insurrection in Utah that threatened to have another sovereign movement. And on top of that, and perhaps even more importantly economically, the gold rush brought in so much gold into the world economies. That was something that the powers that be on the East Coast wanted to tie to the United States of America as quickly as possible. So we wanted, they wanted to have not only California gold, they wanted California to be a free state. There was a huge push by the South to make it a slave state. So these are the things that want, they wanted to tie California to the Union for all those reasons. The effect of being able to do that in May 1869 when they drove that infamous golden spike, which, by the way, Stanford, when he took his first swing at it, missed, <laughs> and he had to take another swing at it, uh, it was almost exactly 100 years before the moon landing. And yes, it had that sort of not only symbolic but also media kind of effect across the United States. But I like to compare it even more so because, yeah, not many of us have been to the moon. You're wonderful. <laughs> understatement there. But many of us, in fact, pretty much all of us at this point are tied together by today's transcontinental railroad, the internet, which, which very interestingly comes out of the legacy of Leland Stanford, because Stanford is the guy who set up Stanford University, which is the birthplace, the incubator, and the nourisher of the Silicon Valley and all tech that follows. There's no other place in the world that can make that claim, and it's like that for a reason, and it begins with Leland Stanford. Taking a step back to um, the railroad era, the terminus, the western terminus, eventually ended up being located in Oakland, but I know that Stanford's initial plan was to end it out at Yerba Buena Island, right smack dab in the middle of San Francisco Bay. So what was the thought process behind that plan, and why didn't it work out like that? The San Francisco Bay between Yerba Buena and Oakland is essentially a long mud flat. It's not a deeply scoured navigational channel as it is on the western side between San Francisco and Yerba Buena. So ships are not going to be able to, with any kind of deep draft, they're going to be able not to be able to do that, particularly before dredging took place. Consequently, this is not a great port on the Oakland side, the East Bay side, unless you can dredge. And in those days, they didn't have that kind of technology. So the idea was that we could get a bridge that would start in Oakland and just cover that mud flat, sound familiar, get it to Yerba Buena, and on that side, you have a deep water port. Well, somebody said in San Francisco, but look, we're going to be paying hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, and today probably it would translate to billions of dollars, to pay into this railroad, and we're not even going to get a terminus in San Francisco? Well, we want to have this. Well, the big four were thinking, we don't want to be able to give any kind of power to this 
famously, or you might say infamously, disputatious city of San Francisco, which has a long history of being really difficult to deal with on pretty much every kind of approach. So here's a perfect idea. We'll build this little bridge over the mudflat, we'll get to Yerba Buena, and we'll have this island, and we'll control the island. And the city and county of San Francisco, we can just thumb our noses at them. And of course, the people of the city and county of San Francisco were aghast at this. The plan failed because the federal government said, no, we're keeping Yerba Buena as a military base, and you cannot have it. And so the, the terminus ends up in Oakland instead, um, where the port of Oakland continues on, uh, that tradition of being a hub of global capital and commerce and transportation. So the railroad, in order to come to Oakland, they had to gain control, basically monopolistic control over Oakland's entire waterfront. We're talking about a huge, vast swath of very valuable, very strategic real estate. So how do these, the big four, as you mentioned, the railroad owners, they're not living in Oakland. Uh, how do they come into this town and wrestle control of the waterfront um, into the hands of the railroad so they can do whatever they want for as long as they want? This was a tactic that they had learned early and often, and Leland Stanford, Leland Stanford was principally responsible for this. Leland Stanford, which we haven't talked about yet, but I presume that we will, was not only the governor of California in the early 1860s, but the exact same time he was president of the Central Pacific Railroad. And it was clear to him what was the most important job was not just conflating his business ambitions with his responsibilities to the taxpayers and high public office, but the most important thing to him was to make sure that his company was making a ton of money. So he had bullied the state legislature into giving a lot of bonds. He had bullied the counties into doing that, and bonds, of course, are just a euphemistic way to raise taxes. And this is the play that he made in Oakland when he needed to have some control of the waterfront. There's an infamous guy who had finally controlled the Oakland waterfront horse carpentier oakland's very first mayor and uh, a really nice guy i guess by all this i'm being very sarcastic here yeah. this basically guy, a con man basically a great con man <laughs> and there were a couple of them there was another real estate guy named adams who did the same thing in the inland stretches right. but uh, well, he was partners with carpentier they were all yeah. in cahoots with each other right yeah. uh so what stanford had done is he had said look i need to have a bit of this land on the waterfront, but I know you're gonna want something out of it, so uh, let's make a deal. And the guy said, well, I don't understand it. I've got all the cars, I own the land. And so what Stanford would say, but I have this other card in my back pocket called, and thank you for bringing it up earlier, Yerba Buena Island, and I can go right past you and put it in there. So Carpentier, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, although I grew up in a French-speaking household, so I want to say it differently, but I believe that's the way that he said it at the time. We're in America now, Roland. We're in America, <laughs> darn it all the heck, <laughs> and proud of it. Uh, so he kind of bullied Carpentier. I'm going to just going to say Horace, if you don't mind. Right, but uh, lest anyone you know feel too sorry for Horace about losing his uh, iron grip on Oakland's waterfront, he did become an extremely wealthy man as a result of his deal, uh, his partnership of establishing the Oakland Waterfront Company with the Big Four, correct? He did. They, they all ended up very, very well, but so did Leland Stanford, I, they, yeah. you know, except uh, for his rather bitter ending, but we'll get to that later. Yeah. So um, basically the pie was big enough for the uh, oligarchs to all get a nice hefty piece of the Oakland waterfront, and uh, everyone left with uh, 
the deal with very fat pockets, except for you know the people of Oakland who who, who lost control of the waterfront and uh, instead saw all those profits from that trade going to you know some of the richest people in the country. And you can see the legacy of that today if you just go to Jack London Square and look at the railroad tracks, which you may think is really kind of cool when you're having a beer at the first and last down there. But in point of fact, Oakland has little or at all control over uh, the that piece of land that swaths right through the waterfront all the way to the port. Yeah. So we, we will get to Stanford and his incredible life story in a minute, but I just want to ask one more question about Oakland specifically before we uh, dive into the American disruptor, Leland Stanford. And that is, you know, at the beginning of this interview, we talked about how Oakland was uh, a very kind of like a shabby little village in the 1850s. But then the railroad comes in about 1870, and things really change really fast, really dramatically. Can you tell me a little bit about the impact of the establishment of that railroad through Oakland? How did it change the town? Go to West Oakland, and you will see how that really began with this city. The magnificent Victorians and one of, you know, all anything on the west side of the freeway down there, all the way to the waterfront. You will see not only this uh, is the result of the terminus of the old station, which is unfortunately falling apart down there as well, but this is because so many of, and particularly this is a wonderful thing that happened at the time, not enough, but it's still we want to grasp something that's positive here. African Americans who were largely shut out of the American economy were able to get jobs as Pullman porters. And they were very proud of it. And they did a magnificent job of it. And they were paid reasonably well, if only because there was the huge Pullman strike and they had organized labor. And consequently, these proud Americans built these beautiful homes down there near the railroad station. That really was the seed of Oakland today, and it, it's all because of the railroad. All right, so let's talk about Stanford himself a little bit. You write in this book that when Mark Zuckerberg says, quote, the biggest risk is not taking any risk, he's channeling Leland Stanford, who took ridiculous chance after ridiculous chance and fell on his face time after time. An interesting characterization of someone who became one of the wealthiest, most powerful people in the country. But it, that, that uh, um, analogy that you make of Stanford failing over and over again, it kind of reminded me of that famous mantra that came out of Silicon Valley a while ago, uh, to fail early and fail often. Um, so I'm wondering if you see Stanford's pattern of like overly ambitious, repetitive failures <laughs> as something that kind of influenced the uh, kind of proverbial DNA of Silicon Valley. And if you can talk about some of those early missteps that you uh, mentioned in that quote. I don't know about you, Liam, or, or your audience, but I've gotten kind of tired of that broken down old Silicon Valley trope that failure's good. Anybody who's failed knows that it's not good, it sucks. <laughs> but the idea is, you know, to get up and brush yourself off and keep going again. Failure is not a prerequisite to success. Failure sucks. Let's just establish that. Leland Stanford, though, is the kind of guy who did fail time and time and time again, but he just got up and kept going. Uh, for what kind of reasons, we don't know. But this was a guy who's... Well, he was pretty shameless, and that always helps. <laughs> I, can't, I can't add to that. <laughs> I think that's brilliantly put. Thank you very much. Uh, he got up, and he just kept going, and he really didn't care what the consequences of who got hurt, so on and so forth. And yes, it is very much the sort of pattern that we see again and again and again, and celebrated for reasons I'm not entirely comfortable with in the Silicon Valley culture. 
Yeah. Um, so w can you describe a few of those failures specifically? Absolutely. Even as a boy, his older brother, Josiah, who lived in that house down there uh, by the lake for more than 20 years, I think 24 years or so, something like that, uh, said in his memoirs, well, his dictated memoirs that you can find at the Bancroft Library, never been published, that Leland, even as a boy, uh, would try to shirk work, what we would call today a slacker. Uh, if there was something tough that had to be done that he didn't want to do, they couldn't find him. He'd be hiding out someplace else. His parents got a little fed up with that and said, okay, look, so, you know, he was born in a bar in 1824 in what was then the American frontier, what is today's Albany. But there was a lot of work to be done in a little farm they had around the bar during the day and at night they were expected to work in the tavern. But this is something he didn't particularly like to do. So his parents got a little bit tired of that and sent him off to school, which they did not do with the other children that they had. But he went to three successive schools where he was either expelled, dropped out, or just sort of uh, failed altogether and couldn't cut it. Which means that when Leland Stanford was about 18 years old and he had finished his attempts at these three schools did not have the equivalency of what today would be a high school diploma, which of course immediately anybody's going to think that's rather ironic. Here's the founder of one of the world's great universities who didn't even have a high school diploma, uh, but that's the way it was. And I don't think that that's necessarily a failure on his part. I think perhaps that might be considered to be his ultimate success that he managed to do that. Anyway, he, he failed at all these things and then he disappears for about three years, which is kind of interesting. Thing. And then he pops up again in this small town, very far away, a thousand miles away, north of Wisconsin, north of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in a little place called Port Washington. Well, later on, when he was asked where he had spent those three years, he began to tell people that he had apprenticed at a law firm in Albany, that he had taken and passed the New York bar and had practiced law there, but then decided for one reason or another to leave his family, to leave his friends, everything he knew, and go to this remote, nowhere place, Port Washington, uh, around 1850, which makes no sense. And so this, I thought, was rather curious, and I spent a fair amount of time, actually I spent a ridiculous amount of time, to be honest, trying to find any kind of documentation that he had taken the bar, that he had passed the bar, there's none. That he had practiced law, there's none. I got so obsessed with this that I actually found the personal papers of the law firm in the rare books collection at Syracuse, no, excuse me, at SUNY Buffalo, and spent too much time reading hundreds of handwritten 19th century pages here. There is no mention whatsoever of any Leland Stanford ever working there, doing anything there whatsoever. So I'm going to say somewhat comfortably, I'm pretty sure this was his first big, oh, what do we call it in the news business these days? Oh, yes, a falsehood. But I think you and I would just call a lie. So he, so is, he was an innovator when it came to a resume, <laughs> quote unquote, polishing as well, huh? He was very, very good at this. He was very entrepreneurial about it, shall we say that. So he shows up in his little port, uh, Washington, in Wisconsin couple hundred people. And there he goes to work for a local lawyer for a couple of years. And then finally he does take the Wisconsin bar and he does pass it. But he has another failure there. He gets thrown out of a courtroom and he's not doing well at all. And then one early morning in the late winter, a fire ravages the downtown. His office burns down to the dirt street. He loses his law books, his IOUs, everything. And he is once again, as a young man in his early 20s, 
completely screwed. He has nothing again to show for what he's going to do. And this is really the pivot point of his life at this point. This is where he has to make a decision that changes everything. And he famously comes to Sacramento, teams up with uh, some other local shopkeepers, and they hatch this plan. Very audacious, very... Um, it seems like they were in way over their heads to, you know, they're going to be the guys to bring the railroad to California. And somehow they actually managed to pull it off. You talk about it in great detail in the book. I won't go into the, all the details of, of how they um, kind of became the big four. But one thing that I do want to delve into is the role that their sort of savvy around government lobbying played in, in their success. So at the federal level, for example, the lobbyists that they were working with, the big four that they were working with, um, not only helped write the r legislation that established the you know, funding for the Transcontinental Railroad, but he was actually employed as a staff member of politicians on the relevant committees that were passing that legislation. And then, of course, as you mentioned earlier, at the state level, Stanford became the governor of California, which allowed him to funnel tax money into this corporation that was making him rich. So, you know, I mean, self-serving politicians, corruption, etc. I don't think anyone is too stunned by that at this point. But these conflicts of interest are just, I mean, insanely over the top blatant. I mean, when the governor of California is like also uh, the head of the, the president of the most important corporation in the state, and he's basically using his office to uh, enrich himself and, and, you know, do all these kinds of special favors to the railroad. It's really kind of interesting to understand, like, how he got away with that. And um, I know that in one anecdote that you mentioned in the book, Stanford's brother was literally tossing gold pieces at voters in front of the voting booths to uh, encourage them to vote uh, on legislation that would be fail, uh, favorable to the railroads. But not all the bribery was that uh, ham-fisted, let's say. So how were they able to pull this off? Okay, very briefly here. So he has his failure in Wisconsin. His brothers had already established the beachhead in Sacramento because they were some of the original 49ers. And they found it was more money in running a store than getting themselves dirty, grubbing for gold in the dirt. So they convinced him, look, you've screwed up everything else. Come on out. He does. He doesn't have a buck. They sent him up in the foothills to run a, a franchise store of Stanford Brothers, which sell dry goods. They sell mining equipment. They sell liquor. They sell cigars, so on and so forth. And there's an important thing that happens up there, which is a precedent for the uh, fact that he was governor and president of the railroad at the same time. Here he is. He's about 24 years old. He's up in a small little uh, gold rush town called Cold Spring up in the mountains, up in the Sierra Nevada. And he does have this little piece of paper that says that he's a lawyer from Wisconsin. So the Placer County supervisors need someone to be a justice of the peace. And there's not a whole lot of people who have those kind of qualifications. So he says, look, I could be justice of the peace. Look, I have this piece of paper. And they say, great. At the same time, he not only has the store, but he does something that goes back to his, where he was born. He was born and raised in a bar. So he opens up a tavern of his own up there. And he calls it sort of as a tribute to his youth the Empire Saloon. So Liam, guess where he runs his courtroom? In the bars, where he dispenses frontier justice and liquor in the same place. And this is important because this is when he discovers that conflating 
business and his uh, desire to make a lot of money with the responsibilities of public office or a very powerful cocktail. And this happens later Literally. On. Literally. <laughs> Literally. Or we may say a, a, a strong alloy if we want to go that direction. Any event, it's a little bit of, uh, a little bit of sorcery that's going on there, yeah. one way or the other. And uh, when he finally is, comes back down to Sacramento, his brothers take off, he finds himself at the Stanford Brothers store around the corner from a guy who's very successfully selling shoes and carpets. His name is Charles Crocker. But perhaps more importantly, right next door are two guys who are also selling hardware, a guy named Collis Huntington and another guy named Mark Hopkins. And they know that there is this plan that the federal government is very interested in getting that transcontinental railroad that we talked about to tie the nation together as the Civil War is brewing. And they also know that this is going to take a huge amount of capital that they don't have. They're four shopkeepers. But they see that there is some legislation in Congress where the government, for the first time, is talking about funding a private enterprise to get this thing done. And they start stroking their long beards and thinking, how can we get this done? And when Leland Stanford moves in next door, they look at him. Now, I want you to think about how he looks, because this is kind of important. He's about 5'11", shy of six feet. He's about 190, so he's a stalwart kind of guy. He's kind of quiet, but he has a brand. He's Stanford Brothers. Everybody in town knows about Stanford Brothers. And they think, you know, this guy would make a great front man for us. We're going to need some political muscle. And he did run unsuccessfully. He got crushed in Wisconsin running for district attorney, so he clearly has political ambitions. This is an asset that we might be able to use. Now there's one other huge problem, an engineering problem, which we go back to Silicon Valley and engineers and naive people and, and people who will come in like sharks and take advantage of them. There is a move by the southern oligarchy to bring that railroad across the southern deserts and come to the Los Angeles or San Diego area because King Cotton is the number one export of this country and they want those Asian markets. But the North is saying, you're crazy. We're never going to give you that kind of powers. California's got to be a free state and we're not going to have a railroad going down there. It's got to come through the center or the north of the country. But every engineer who comes out here says the Sierra Nevadas are insurmountable. Can't do it. A young engineer named Theodore Judah, and for our listeners who maybe are familiar with the N. Judah in the Sunset District in San Francisco, that's who it's named after, comes out for some other railroad entrepreneurs. He finds the route across the Sierra Nevada that will work for a rail line. But he's having a lot of problems when he goes down to San Francisco and he tries to raise capital from private, what we call venture capitalists today. They say, look, this is a great idea. We can see this, but we're not going to see any return for our money for 10, 20 years. Forget it. I'm getting 3 5% right now. He says, well, screw you guys. I'll go up to Sacramento, which was then the biggest town in California, and I'll raise the money there. So he goes up to Sacramento, and he finds the same reception. But at one meeting with a bunch of people who have some financiers, some people with some money, there's one guy in the back of the room who's listening to this pitch and thinking about this. He's quiet. He doesn't say anything. He waits for everybody to shake Theodore Judah's hand, give their regrets, take off. Then he quietly goes up to him, and he says, 
Hi, uh, your plan's very interesting to me. Uh, my name is Collis Huntington, and I have a couple of partners who would love to take a meeting with you next Thursday night. Would you like to come up to our offices? And this little engineer, a little guppy, swims into this shark pond where Leland Stanford, Collis Huntington, Charles Crocker, and Mark Hopkins are waiting for him. They say, in return for your helping us with this route, we will make you a director of the company. We'll name you chief engineer. But by the way, do you know anybody in Washington, D.C. who can help us? And in fact, he does know some people in Washington, D.C. So they send him back, and he's not only one of the staff, he is the staff person for the House Committee on Railroad and the staff person for the Senate Committee on Railroad. And he essentially writes the legislation that gives the franchise to the Central Pacific Railroad. It's amazing. I mean, people talk about the revolving door in Washington now of people going from government positions to becoming lobbyists and then back and forth. But he wasn't even going through the revolving door. He was holding both jobs at the exact same time. He was. And at the time, uh, people were raising their eyebrows. But you have to remember, the Civil War was upon them. They were desperate. And you have to remember that the president of the United States who signed this legislation, who was a one-term congressman from Illinois, kind of a tall guy, told funny stories. I believe you're talking about Honest Abe. Oh, that's his name, Abe uh, Lincoln, right? I think I've heard of him. You've heard of him. (laughs) Get a $5 bill out. Uh, Abe, God bless his heart, uh, made his money being a railroad attorney in Illinois. And he loved this idea, and he knew how important it was. So he quickly signed the legislation in 1862. Suddenly, these four shopkeepers were in the chips, but they had this enormous job in front of them, and how were they going to do it? So let's talk about that legislation that empowered the railroads to do what they ended up doing. Can you tell me a little bit about the Pacific Railway Act? One thing I want to specifically get into is that theoretically, this legislation was designed to avoid a privately controlled monopolistic enterprise, but somehow... That is exactly what ended up happening. So how did the American taxpayer get saddled with this massively expensive project that, as you write, quote, socialized the losses and privatized the rewards of the railroad industry? The way that the financing was going to work was simply by bonds. Now, uh, not a lot of people understand bonds very fully, but you need to understand this. Bonds are essentially a tax increase. So the government was going to finance this thing with the bonds, but the taxpayers were eventually going to pay for it. And their rationale for this was that they don't want to nationalize the railroads as they did in England, for example, because that is that horrible bugaboo, that evil socialism. We can't have that. So we don't want to have do it. We still believe in private enterprise. On the other hand, it's going to give a lot of power to this private company. So we're going to put some rules into effect here that are going to hopefully regulate this. In the end, when this was all said and done, and this takes some years, it turns out they got the worst of both deals. The government had no control over it because they didn't write the rules very uh, very well. And there was no kind of oversight about that, what they were going with the private uh, enterprise, which is getting the public money. This is a first of a kind in American history. Uh, they had no control over that. And this is where the great biggest scandal, aside from the small ones like throwing gold coins out to voters in order to vote for a railroad bond increase in San Francisco took place. But we'll get to that in a little bit. So the idea was this, that you're going to build 
this rail line from Sacramento, and you're going to meet one coming from the Midwest called the Union Pacific. You're going to meet someplace. Later, it turns out to be in Promontory Summit in Utah, May 1869, which we mentioned earlier. Okay, so you're going to get 10000 bucks for every mile that you lay down on the flat valley floors or the deserts. You're going to get double that if you're going to go up into the foothills, and you're going to get triple that if you go over the high Sierra, because that's going to be the most expensive part. But the first thing that Crocker does is he says, okay, well, let's say that the mountains begin 10 miles out of Sacramento at a little place called Arcade Creek. Now, you know, I, it's funny because I've driven in that area and it doesn't seem very mountainous to me. So that's uh, some interesting landscape surveying that Crocker employed there to uh, boost those profits. There, there's no way that anybody can say <laughs> that the Sierra Nevada begins 10 miles east of Sacramento. Any Californian knows that. But this is the thing that causes the huge rift with our hero, Theodore Judah, who is, again, the naive, the ingenue uh, engineer who says, but that's not right. That's not moral. That's not correct. You can't do that. And they said, well, sorry, dude, we're getting all this extra money, whether it's right or wrong, doesn't really matter. There's nobody coming out here. We don't have an internet yet where people can look at, you know, pictures are being posted about Arcade Creek. And so, so this is the point, uh, to use an, acronym, an, an anachronistic term, that the big four decide to basically Zuckerberg Judah out of the deal? <laughs> <laughs> Your verb, not mine. <laughs> I won't object to it, but I just want you to take ownership of that. So, uh, yes, they push him. They say, well, if you don't like it, you can, you can take a hike. And he says, yeah, screw you. I will take a hike. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take my plants. I'm going to go back east again, and I'm going to raise private capital in New York City, and I'll show you guys. I'm going to buy you out. And they said, okay, sayonara. Don't let the train hit you in the derriere as you go. Okay, so on and so forth. So this is kind of a tragic end here. What happens is Judah, who's still in his early 30s, or late 30s, pardon me, he goes back down to Sacramento, gives on a boat, goes around the horn, not around the horn, goes to the Isthmus in Nicaragua, where he contacts either yellow fever or something like that. When he lands in New York, he's dead about two days later. So the big four have all this to themselves. Again, serendipitous history once again, puts them in a position of complete control of this railroad. So taking a step back, it's interesting to note that the big four, who eventually became the, some of the wealthiest capitalists of their era, when they went out to um, open up their IPO to the big money people in San Francisco, when they were looking for investments, no one would give them money. So what changed for them? How did they go from you know, getting turned down at every business meeting they were going to, looking for people to put money in this railroad, to all of a sudden people changing their tune and, and ponying up to get on board with this scheme? So remember, the federal government money, which would be equivalent to the billions of dollars today, was really seed money. It was a thing to get it started, but it wasn't going to complete it. They still needed more. So yeah, Leland went down as governor and president uh, of the railroad down to San Francisco again, and they gave him the same story that they had given Judah earlier. Nice idea, but we don't see the return. See you later, alligator. But anticipating this, because Huntington, Crocker, and Hopkins were some pretty sharp guys, they had already put Stanford in the position of power as governor. So they said, dude, you got to go raise some more money. We already got some federal money. Go get some more government money. Go get some taxpayer money. So he goes to the state legislature, and in the word of a 
Republican governors who followed Leland very shortly afterwards bullied the uh, state legislature into another huge tax increase via bonds to finance more of the railroad. That worked so well that he started going to the county. So, for example, he went to Placer County, his old place, you remember, where he got himself the nice gig as a justice of the peace. And he said, we need some more money uh, to get the railroad. It's going to come through here to through your uh, the name of the town at the time was Hangtown. Now we know it as Placerville. Uh, you know, so pony up some more dough for us. And they said, well, wait, wait, you already got all this federal money, now you got all this state money. Why should we pay extra? And he says, well, you don't have to, but gosh, I may have to build a railroad around your towns then. So they were essentially extorted into doing that. That worked so well, he did the same play in Sacramento. That worked so well, he started going to cities and doing that. And this was the game plan that Stanford was responsible for and without which that railroad never would have been built. He did it up and down California from Los Angeles uh, up to Sacramento from the Sacram uh, from the Sierra Nevada down to the Pacific Coast. So this is what's so mind-boggling to me that it's inconceivable of the railroad being built without government funding, without significant overwhelming amounts of government funding. The taxpayers basically paid for these rails, but right away Stanford starts turning around and saying that the government was holding him back, basically biting the hands that the hands that fed him and and his uh, partners, and saying that they didn't need the government. They did it all by themselves. You know, they're the great men, and this was their accomplishment. How do you make sense of that disconnect between what it seems like he really believed and the facts on the ground, which are drastically opposite? Well, I, I know to our modern listeners today, it's impossible to believe that anybody in high position of power could just make up stuff and conflate somehow their personal aggrandizement with thinking that they represent the entire nation or the state or a city and would never be able to have that kind of a conflict. But in point of fact, Leland Stanford is the prototype for that person exactly. Uh, beware of those who do not uh, pay attention to their history. It has been said over and over and over again to the deaf ears of Americans, I don't like history. Well, then you must really like what we have in our government today because it's the same thing over and over and over again. What Leland started doing, particularly after they tied the rails together at Promontory Summit in May 1869, he knew he was in a position of great power, and he began to tell people left and right that you not only should the federal government be very grateful for their private enterprise, which in fact the taxpayers had subsidized to a huge extent, but they should not have to pay the money back. And this started to really upset people here and there, but particularly got the uh, alarm bells going in the halls of power. And when they looked at what Leland Stanford was spending his money on, because they were not reinvesting their profits from the railroad into the railroad itself. He had this unbelievably ostentatious mansion up in Sacramento, which is still today a historic monument, and I recommend anybody go take a look at it. Then he decided when they moved the uh, railroad company headquarters from Sacramento to San Francisco, he needed a new place to live here. And there was this little hill, a bald little hill, towards the north and center of the city. There wasn't much development on there, but great views up there. And he built this massive 45,000 square foot mansion up there to what we now know as Knob Hill. And that wasn't enough. He found through his grand tours of Europe that if you are a really successful capitalist and you are a big shot, 
what you really needed to do is own your own vineyard. I don't know if that sounds familiar to people who follow Silicon Valley fortunes. Uh, so he started what became the largest vineyard in the world. There's parts of it still exist up there. It's called Vina. It's a little bit north of Chico. And Liam, even that wasn't enough. Now he needs... It's never enough. It's never enough for people <laughs> like that. There's never enough. So he decided he needed a little country estate because as everybody knows, San Francisco is a cold, windy, nasty place. I'm speaking as an East Bay guy. I grew up here. I live here. I raised my family here. So yes, a little local pride. Uh, uh, but San Francisco tends to be a little bit on the cold and foggy and wet side. And he wanted someplace sunny. He learned there was a little town about 30 miles south of San Francisco on the peninsula named Mayfield that looked like a really nice little place that maybe you could buy some land. But there was a problem with Mayfield. It was a stagecoach stop that was noted for being a rowdy, drunken de debauchery of a, of a town. It had something like 20 breweries. But there was a little piece of land available just north of that. And then it became a lot more land just north of that. Anyway, to make a long story a little bit shorter, he put together more than 8,000 acres just north of Mayfield and decided to put a railroad stop there. They needed a name for it. And it was kind of a famous big redwood tree that Portola had used for navigation and, and it had a lovely name. And he decided to use that name for his town, Palo Alto. And that was his country estate. So now... The state government's getting upset about this because here's a guy who's squandering all this taxpayer money in the most ostentatious way you can imagine. And they think, uh, you know, and he's beginning to have this monopoly railroad throughout uh, California, not only on the bullying of the taxpayer money, but anybody who even looked remotely like competitor. Oh, like Instagram might have looked like a competitor to Facebook. He goes in there and he just buys it out using taxpayer money. So he controls all the railroads. In fact, his greed, his avariciousness doesn't stop with railroads. He knows that there are two principal rivers in California that have some navigation, the San Joaquin and the Sacramento. And there's some ferry lines. They buy those out. Oh, and he knows there's ferry boats in San Francisco Bay. He buys those out. He controls the infrastructure for transportation. And, and the state says, we're going to start looking into this. And this is where the big scandals begin. It's interesting just to, just to pause before we get into some of those scandals, because you bring up this analogy of how the railroad saw anything that could potentially be even remotely viewed as competition as a threat that needed to be either gobbled up or crushed. And of course, there are so many parallels to what we're seeing in the uh, tech industry now and um, some of the ways that you described the um, railroads treating their competitors. Because um, I don't want to just pick on Facebook, but remind me of you know Amazon's business practices now where they're you know such a huge market force that they can really dictate the terms of their agreements with various retailers and things like that. But all this is just to say that so many of the kind of business practices that you describe in the book that were employed by the big four feel like if you just change the name of the companies, it could be applied to exactly what we're seeing in the headlines of any you know business section in the New York Times today or on uh, CNBC or whatever. So was it eerie for you in a way to see like how little things changed in, in a certain sense? Because this is kind of like the same playbook that's being used today as was being used 150 years ago. You know, it reminds me, actually, uh, there's a very famous British historian who was an Oxford Don and a, a great scholar, and they'd asked him to define history, and they expected to get a, a wonderfully erudite definition in high English. And he scratched his head, and he said, a definition of history, 
Well, at the end of the day, I'm going to have to say it's just one damn thing after another. <laughs> and I have to tell you, I, those, were, those, were the, um, those were the reactions I kept getting as I was delving into this book, aside from the fact that those parallels, that, 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 that these train tracks lead right from Leland Stanford all the way to Silicon Valley and Stanford University. Yes, the, the eerie may not be the right word, but uh, it didn't give me a pleasant feeling uh, because you just think, gosh, how come we keep just stumbling on the same stupid uh, uh, set of mistakes that we just can't seem to ever recognize and avoid. Let's take a pause right now because, you know, we've been using this terminology, the Central Pacific, the Southern Pacific. Before we get uh, into how they tried to weasel out of their debts, what's the deal with these two different companies? And then I know that these two companies begat many other companies as well. So um, it's very confusing, uh, all these different names. Can you, can you give us a little context for that? I try to make this, it, it can be broken down into a fairly simple way. They start the Central Pacific Railroad Company. And then there's this little competitor that's looking to build a rail line down to San Francisco Bay. And this is even right as they're driving that golden spike into a promontory summit. And that little company is called the Southern Pacific Railroad. So Stanford immediately wants to buy that out because he knows how critical that is. But then they start using the Southern Pacific Railroad to start buying other companies and potential competitors. This goes on for quite a number of years. So finally, the big four are controlling these two different railroad companies, the Central Pacific and the Southern Pacific, and trying to pretend that they're completely separate and that they run only the Central Pacific and not the SP. But because they didn't want to look like a monopoly. They don't want anybody to know that they are a monopoly. They want, and there's documented evidence about this, which you will find in, in the book, their correspondence, where they're going out of their way to obfuscate this. But at some point, they throw their hands up and say, screw it, we might as well just consolidate this. We can probably save money. We won't have to have two treasurers and two CFOs and two accountants and so on and so forth. Let's consolidate it. And let's just use the name Southern Pacific Railroad. Consequently, that's what it became. It's interesting that you mentioned documentation, because in this uh, scandal that you were starting to get into, into a minute ago regarding the government being very alarmed at the big four's reluctance to pay back their debts and um, uh, establishing this Pacific Railway Commission to you know, open an investigation into this matter, one of the things that came out later was that a lot of the documentation was burned. I mean, uh, was it Hopkins who had a bonfire with the books at one point? <laughs> well, here's the deal. So the state gets, uh, they, they want to regulate them, but they can't do that because what turns out the Stanford is literally bribing the regulators by millions of dollars, giving them land, giving them cash. They look the other way. So the state has got its hands tied up. Here's the other issues. They established three laundromats, essentially, three separate companies, Contract and Finance, Western Improvement, so on and so forth. And these companies are essentially laundering the money so nobody can keep track of where that money is going. The federal government is worried that at some point this debt is going to come back down on the federal government's uh, uh, ability to pay, and it's going to just really kill them because it's a lot of money. So they launch their own investigation. Congress launches its own investigation. It's a year-long probe that goes from the grand sweep to the very granular. When they come out to California, when they come out to the Bay Area, their star witness is Leland Stanford. And they say, and at this point, Leland now is a senator, a United States senator from California. 
And they say, Senator, um, we'd like to know, you know, what you did with all the money that you owe us. And he says, well, we don't really owe you the money. You should be just thankful to us. And they say, well, that's not, you know, you signed a contract, dude. We're really sorry about that. But you promised to pay the money back in 30 years at 6% interest. So we'd like to see what happened to the money. And Leland scratches his head. And, and this is all uh, transcribed uh, uh, testimony before a federal probe, a congressional committee, and he says, what do you mean you want to see where the money is? And they say, well, the books, where are the books? And he says, well, I, you know what? I don't know if I've ever even seen the books. You're the president of the railroad. You've never seen the books? Well, I, you know, I don't get into that level of detail. Mr. Hopkins took care of the books. Well, where's Mr. Hopkins? Oh, really sorry. Mr. Hopkins is dead. Well, who's the last guy who saw the books? Oh, we don't really know. We're, this goes on and on and on and on and on. So then it turns out that the books have been destroyed. Somebody thinks, yeah, they've been burned. Somebody, somehow, when they moved the headquarters from Sacramento to San Francisco, all the accounting books that were important for the three laundromat companies have been destroyed. So nobody really knows where the money is all of a sudden. So now the commission is really upset. They say, President Stanford, Senator Stanford, or whatever the hell you want to be called, he'd love to be called governor, as a matter of fact, throughout his life. We have some more questions for you. But at this point, he starts answering like this. Tell me if this sounds familiar to you or anybody. You baby boomers out there are listening. Maybe this will sound familiar from Watergate years. On advice of counsel, I declined to answer that question. Uh, I don't remember uh, what happened there. I don't think I can recall that, so on and so forth. And then they bring in his minions, his lieutenants, his captains, uh, Gosh, you know, I, I don't really know about the answer to that question. I don't know where the books are. I don't know who had them last. They get very angry at him, and they say, you know what? This is a congressional committee. It's almost like it's impossible, this is to believe, that somebody would refuse to accede to a subpoena to appear before Congress. I mean, that's not impossible to imagine, but it's very much like that. So they take him to court, and it's a high three-panel court. It's the step below the Supreme Court. And they say, you're going to be sued by the federal government, forced to answer these questions. But guess what? Two of the judges on this high three-panel federal court are there because of Leland Stanford. And guess how they rule? He doesn't have to testify. And just to clarify, when you say they were there because of him, he literally appointed them to their judgeships in order to, uh, you know, basically make his future legal battles uh, pan out in his favor down the line? He didn't directly appoint them, but for example, with one of them, mm -hmm. uh, Stephen Field, who becomes important later mm -hmm. on, he's the one he told Lincoln appoint him to the Supreme Court. Because in those days, patronage, you would go to the Republican governor and say, we need somebody from California. And Stanford said, Stephen Field is your guy. So Lincoln appointed him. And this is a payback that Stephen Field gave him. Another guy, Lorenzo Sawyer, was there because Huntington and Stanford had lobbied very heavily when he was a much younger judge to get him on the bench. And that whole thing about the octopus, and I think we may talk about that a little bit. Uh, he was a judge who was principal in there to get Stanford out of trouble with that. So these are guys who owed him a big, big set of favors, and they were paying him back. And it always helps to have allies uh, sitting on the bench when your uh, case comes up. 
But, but Liam, I, again, I think, you know, th this is difficult for us to imagine that in this day and age that uh, the President of the United States or somebody in power would be appointing people to positions of judgeships uh, just because they're going to be able to return personal favors. I just don't believe that happens. Yeah, can't, can't see that happening these days. No. Um, a second ago, you mentioned the octopus. So I'd love it if you could um, explain the uh, origins of that nickname and why it, why it really resonated with people and why people just embraced it, because um, it really is kind of a perfect metaphor for what the, what the railroads became. And, and I just want to kind of put this in a little bit more context. Because initially, the railroads were seen very favorably and received a lot of you know, positive media coverage and people were very excited and you know, this is going to connect the nation and make travel easier. You know, so many material benefits. But then the tide really turns against the railroads um, in the kind of public eye and the octopus is part of this um, falling out of public favor. So given that context, tell me about the octopus. That contract that we talked about that gave them all that money to build the railroad also gave them a huge swath of land across the country. 20 miles on either side of the rail line and you'd be able to take all the mineral rights, all the timber, everything you need and extinguish Indian titles as well and it was to steal the Indian lands. And when the railroad was built, they had all this real estate and they were looking going, well, gosh, we could sell this real estate. But of course, the federal government and the taxpayers, of course, had already paid for that. So some of that land ran through the Central Valley, and the Central Valley is where a lot of farmers who are coming from the South and from the Midwest, where times can get pretty tough, hear about these deep alluvial soils and weather that is fantastic, and you get three crops a year. So they start going onto some of this railroad land, but Leland Stanford says, you know, you're squatting on our land, and you're going to have to pay for it. And they said, okay, cool, we'll pay you, you know, a buck an, an acre or whatever it was that the federal government had suggested would be an appropriate compensation. And Leland and company say, no, this land is worth a lot more now. We have the railroad line coming through here. We've built these towns like Davis. We built the town of Colton down near San Bernardino. So we think, you know, you're going to have to pay a lot more. And they're going, you know, these are Civil War veterans, for example, are saying, you're crazy. We're not, we can't afford to pay you more than this. There's a little riot down near Hanford. Uh, three or four people get shot and killed. And this causes a huge PR disaster for the railroad. Now people are dying because of the railroad. And that incident that took place down there at Muscle Slough is the basis for a pretty famous book that at least I had to read when I was in school. I don't know if California school kids still read this, called The Octopus by Frank Norris. And it's an octopus because of these long uh, reaches of their many arms with tentacles everywhere into every part of the California economy and politics and consequently the culture as well. And people were rebelling against this in a very serious way and felt totally powerless to get away from its grip. So it makes sense why the railroads were kind of the perfect villain in this scenario because as you said, here you have these kind of down-on-their-luck farmers looking for a new start, coming to California to kind of chase the, the American dream. You know, this is the golden state, the land of opportunity. And then on the other side of the ledger, you have people like Leland Stanford, who in this era of his life is so rich that he's hiring sculptors to portray him as like a god, riding a locomotive out of a cloud and things like that. So it's, it's quite a dichotomy there. Yeah, no, again, it's hard to imagine an American politician considering himself 
himself or comparing himself to some deity. Um, but he, he, he did, did do that, and uh, he would do it repeatedly, and there are many examples we talk about in the book. Uh, it, people are not only feeling powerless about this uh, because of all the things we've already talked about, there's a growing anger about this that um, is becoming notable to some of the other partners of the Big Four. Now, as we mentioned, Hopkins has already passed away. Crocker dies pretty soon afterwards as well. So there's only two left. There's Leland Stanford and there's Huntington. Huntington sees himself as the guy who created this guy, Leland Stanford. And he sees all the trouble that they're having there, and Huntington's not happy about this. So he decides he's going to do something about this. And he launches a bloodless coup against Leland Stanford, takes control of the thing, and he deposes Leland Stanford as the president of the railroad. And this completely breaks Leland Stanford in half. But there was something that happened before that that was even more important to him. And uh, that has to do with the fact that he had married this woman named Jane Lathrop when he was still back east, brought her out to California. He always called her Jenny, and consequently we do in the book as well because nobody really knew her as Jane, but anybody who knew her always called her Jenny Stanford. They were together for 18 years hoping to have a child and never had one, but after 18 years of barren marriage, they uh, were able to be blessed with a, a child, a boy, who they named Leland Stanford Jr. And he was, by all accounts, a great kid. We're not just saying this because there's a, a bad into this as well but he was attentive by everything and if you could by all accounts and if you look at some of the artifacts left from his brief life you can see this is a precocious child and somebody that was obviously the center of their life for all the obvious reasons one of the things that they were hoping for him was to groom him to become the next head of the railroad and to this end, they, had, they were enrolling him in Harvard University when he was going to be 16, which was very common for that time. This was just the way that the bourgeoisie, you know, this is the way that they rolled, right? So they're going to do one, line, one last grand tour of Europe with him before he enrolls in the fall. And in part of this grand tour, they went to Constantinople, today's Istanbul. And it was there where he probably contacted the typhoid uh, fever that killed him at age 15, and he died in Florence. This was the beginning of the end for Leland Stanford. It decimated him, and to recover from this, for both Jenny and for Leland Sr., they wanted to have a memorial, and they came to the conclusion that they would build a university, much like the Harvard University, at, uh, in their minds, although it was not going to be like a Harvard at the beginning. It was going to be just a trade school. And they were going to do it on this vast ranch land that they had in Palo Alto. And hence, the name of the Stanford University is legally Leland Stanford Jr. University. It's a memorial to him. And this is uh, now something that's preoccupying Leland well into uh, 1890s, but in 1893, he's been deposed by the railroad. He's lost his son. The public has turned against him. The government has turned against him, and he is not a healthy guy. He has led a, a very uh, plush life where he's eating way too much. He's not getting any exercise. He's under tremendous stress. He doesn't know how to cope with any of it. He doesn't have the emotional or intellectual skills to deal with all these things that he has created. And at age 69, he dies. 
at his home, his hacienda, if you will, that is now pretty much where the Stanford Shopping Center is now. And this was the end of that era for Leland Stanford, but it is most certainly not the end of the story. Right. Well, before we get into the university, yes. and uh, before anyone starts feeling sorry for Leland Stanford, by the way, I want to, uh, because, you know, obviously losing his son was a horrible tragedy, and, and we can all recognize that. But a, a few minutes ago, you mentioned the impact of the railroad on native people mm. in the West. There was this clause in there about extinguishing Indian titles as rapidly as possible. California is, was essentially built on the genocide of the native people in, in this state. And when Stanford was the governor of California in, uh, was it the 1860s? 1861, 1861, 1862. And so in the 1860s, there was a practice of murdering Indian adults in order to kidnap and sell the young women and children for profit. And uh, you write that 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 tragic practice reached its zenith, reached its peak during Stanford's uh, administration here in California. And so, you know, I guess just from like a modern standpoint, it's really hard to grasp how people could, not only people, but like the whole state apparatus could embrace such a, you know, morally bankrupt, to put it mildly, policy. I mean, Stanford oversaw basically death squads fanning out throughout the state and extinguishing some of the last tribes that were here. Of course, there still are tribes in California that have survived, but um, this was just a a time of great bloodshed and, as you write, enslavement as well. So I'm just wondering, like, how was it framed during that era? Like, how were people talking about it back then? Because it just sounds so psychotic now. It, it was psychotic, and it, it wasn't something that everybody agreed to. I want to make that really clear. There were plenty of good people who were horrified by what was going on here. But to use a word that's very current, certainly here in the urban liberal, or excuse me now, what's the euphemism, progressive uh, Bay Area, where they just demonized them. And this is this thing that we still see today, that somehow because you have a different skin color, because you speak a different language, because you dress differently, because you're from not from uh, Northern European ancestry, that you are different, that you're really not a full human being to be dealt with. This was the way that so many Americans then and too many Americans now view people of African ancestry, right? They did this with the Native Americans as well. Some 10,000, this is astonishing, but this is documented by far better scholars than I am. I simply were using some of their great research here. Uh, There's particularly one UCLA scholar who's really done magnificent work on this. Some 10,000 Indian children in California were enslaved that way. And it goes on beyond that, where people who were coming from Peru, where people were coming from Spain, from Portugal, were also, and Italians, they were diminished as well, but somehow they weren't uh, quite the thing, if you will. Uh, the Irish, although they might have been white, unfortunately, they were uh, people complained that they were beholden to a foreign power. This sounds familiar to contemporary listeners today. And that foreign power would have been the Pope. So they weren't Muslims at the time. It was because you were Catholic at the time. There's always some pariah immigrant that we can blame everything for, right? And so, yes, the Indians suffered greatly. Blacks suffered greatly, so on and so forth. But there was also another group that I should bring up at this point, because it seems like a really good time to do this, the ones who actually built the railroad. Yeah, exactly. You qu- and I know, I know I can tell where you're going with this. And you, you quote a Chinese historian who said that, quote, 
More than anyone else, Stanford is held responsible for the mistreatment and exploitation of thousands of Chinese workers in the U.S. There's a lot of irony to the situation because of how Stanford gained political support by demonizing Chinese people, Chinese immigrants in, in California. But then as uh, the president of the railroad company, he wouldn't have been able to you know, make his fortune without all these Chinese laborers. So can you unpack that for me a little bit? Let me add to the irony that scholar that you're citing, the Chinese scholar, is a professor at Stanford University who wrote that. So let me just read you a very quick paragraph here from Stanford's inaugural address in 1861. Okay? To my mind, it is clear, he said, that the settlement among us of an inferior race is to be discouraged by every legitimate means. Asia, with her numberless millions, sends to our shores the dregs of her population. Large numbers of this class are already here, and unless we do something early to check their immigration, the question, which of the two tides of immigration meeting upon the shores of the Pacific shall be turned back? It will be forced upon our consideration when far more difficult than now of disposal. There can be no doubt that the presence of numbers among us of a degraded and distinct people must exercise a deleterious influence upon the superior race and to a certain extent repel desirable immigration. His brother, Josiah, who we have talked about earlier, remarks in his uh, dictated memoirs that he used to argue with Leland that the Chinese who came for the gold rush were a wonderful influence on California, and Leland had this incredibly out front racist idea about the Chinese. But when it came time to building the railroad, guess what? They had a lot of trouble getting the white guys to do that kind of work. Huh, what a shock. So they put this ad in the Sacramento Union, which was the big paper at the time, saying we need to have thousands of people working really good pay for long-term uh, work, and you should come down here. We're going to have this job fair, and only a couple of white guys show up, but uh, more than a couple of people of Chinese ancestry show up. Now, Crocker, who was the road boss of the big four, says, we can't hire these guys. Look at them. They're not generally as tall as the Irish guys. Uh, they dress funny, and they, they, they talk funny, and they eat funny foods. I mean, they're not like us, uh, but they're desperate. So they take a small group of them, and they put them to work, and they find out, my goodness, they're not only great workers, they're quiet, they're dependable, they don't get drunk. Uh, you, can, you can pay them less than the Irish. Oh, and incidentally, you can pay them a heck of a lot less. They bring their own food, they're less trouble. So at the end of the day, Liam, when this thing is all said and done, anywhere from 12,000, there's some estimates up to 20,000 Chinese built those railroad lines. They are the true John Henrys of what it really becomes such an important aspect of American history, culture, economics, so on and so forth. And they never got their due. So Stanford really likes the idea he's going to pay them less, and he says so. But after the railroad's done, and he goes back to his anti-Chinese ways again, just because that's what he really is. Right, and I know that part of that xenophobia was fed by the fact that people were expecting that the railroads would bring this widespread prosperity to California and the rest of the nation. There was this promise that once the railroads uh, establish these connections, everyone's standard of living will be raised. But 
that's not what happened. And of course, when times are tough, whenever there's an economic recession, people are always looking for scapegoats. People with different colored skin or people with different accents, you know, things of this nature are usually the people that take the brunt of that fury. And, you know, it's that, that uh, xenophobia is very cynically used by politicians to this day, of course. And that's exactly what happened back then. So can you explain to me a little bit of the anti-Chinese backlash that followed the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad? The expectations for the Transcontinental Railroad are very high. Oh, boy, we're going to tie the nation together and California's going to be able to export all its agricultural goods to the East Coast. And we're going to get some cool stuff made back east. But in point of fact, what happened is that the East Coast factories, where labor was significantly cheaper and they were well uh, more advanced in the Industrial Revolution, were sending back lots of really cheap manufactured goods to California and started putting out California manufacturers left and right. So it's like essentially a preview of what happened with globalization, uh, you know, from the 1950s onward. It is very much something that many of us can see today, where cheap Chinese goods flood the market and everybody starts screaming, well, let's overreact and start putting tariffs on them. So at the same time, now you have these 10, 12, maybe more thousands of Chinese workers and others who are being released by the railroad because it's been more or less complete, at least the transcontinental end of it, the big part of it. And so the, the work market is flooded now as well. And so then you have this reaction by these yahoos led by a guy named Dennis Kearney, who is, and forgive me, Liam O'Donoghue, of Irish ancestry, of course, and he leads a thing called the Working Man's Party in San Francisco. There are race riots, they burn down parts of Chinatown. In Los Angeles, this goes on where they're hanging dozens of Chinese by lampposts. It's just a horrible situation. And yes, they're using the Chinese as a scapegoat for these problems, but the interesting thing is that these problems are created by these big four rich white guys, right? Leland Stanford being the head guy. Yeah, because they're the ones who ended up sucking up all the wealth and profits out of this project. So instead of this money being reinvested in businesses across the state, it was being used to establish these insanely gargantuan mansions on the top of Knob Hill and all these other various vanity projects that it wasn't the rising tide that lifted all boats, you know, that was promised, essentially. Uh, this was a early example of, quote unquote, trickle down economics, not exactly playing out as, uh, as promised. Because of all the money that invested in railroads coast to coast, in 1893, this nation suffered probably the worst depression that it ever had until that time, and probably the worst until the Great Depression of the 1930s. And 1893 is when Leland Stanford dies uh, in his big mansion in Palo Alto. So what's happening now is the country is plunged into a huge depression uh, in large measure because if not exclusively, but in very large measure because of the railroad economies. And there's this new university that Jenny inherits, which is a memorial to her dead son and to her fallen man, Leland Sr., her husband. And guess what? When they open up the books of his personal estate, they find he's on the brink of bankruptcy. How could that have happened? Because on top of the fact that he had taken much more money out of the corporations than anybody else and lived so ostentatiously, as you point out, he had also borrowed huge sums of money. And now the federal government is really pissed at him because they want that money back. And they don't know how they're going to get it back. And they're frightened that they might. So they, the Attorney General of the United States, launches a suit against the estate of now dead Leland Stanford. And they want what had been the uh, quarter share of the railroad securities, which can come to about $15 million. If they win this suit, 
Jenny is going to be as poor as you and me right now, maybe more poor. And that also means that she can't fund the university. She can't pay for the heating bill at the university. They can't pay the teachers there. And everybody's like, shut it down. This is ridiculous. You've got a huge mess here. You've got to fight the federal government. You've got to deal with the university. The, the vineyard up uh, north, Vina, is not working. It's failing completely. The wines are undrinkable. Nobody's buying it. You just got a huge mess on your hands. Now, here is a heroic story. Jenny Stanford, a 19th century American woman who was expected to walk three steps behind her man, had very little education, didn't know anything about business, didn't know anything about how to run a university, much less how to build one, Left with, didn't know anything about a lawsuit that's going to go to the Supreme Court of the United States, and yet she pulls this fat out of the fire. It's a tremendous story and one that has not gotten an awful lot of play because, as you know, history tends to be kind of male-centric, right? Uh, and she just does not get the kind of credit that she deserves. So this is pretty remarkable. She actually manages not only to save the university, she goes back east. She's friends with the President of the United States. That's kind of nice. Uh, they have a family friend, the same guy who had ruled uh, that, he, that Leland didn't have to testify, who's now in the Supreme Court, uh, Stephen Field, a very influential guy who gives her good advice. And the President of the United States kind of leans on the AG and so on and so forth. To make a long story a little bit shorter, she wins the suit. So now she's free and clear. She can get the 15 million bucks back uh, and she can save the university. She can wipe her brow and say, okay, the worst is behind me. Everything looks pretty good, except something really bad is going to happen next. That's a nice foreshadowing there, Roland. I appreciate that. And we, and we well, will we, come... We call, that a tease in bro we call that a tease in broadcast. Yeah, after these messages, <laughs> uh, we'll find out what, what that bad thing was. No, but before we do get there, I want to... Um, you know, this is East Bay yesterday, not uh, Silicon Valley yesterday. But I do want to talk a little bit about the establishment of the university before we kind of move, move forward with um, that trajectory. And there's an interesting story about why Stanford decided to start his own university instead of endowing the University of California, which was basically just Berkeley at that time, because he had, he was connected to the UC Regents. Why would, why did he feel the need to, to establish a brand new university instead of boosting this state institution? The University of California was in Berkeley. It started in Oakland. It's the, the, a great East Bay institution. Incredibly important, not just to the East Bay, the Bay Area, California, but the world. And it was already recognized as an important university. There weren't enough people here, a lot of folks said, to start another university. But Leland had been appointed to the Board of Regents by a Republican governor. But very shortly afterwards, that Republican governor decided he was going to run for re-election. A Democrat came in and said, you know what? I don't want this guy on the Board of Regents. I'm going to rescind his, his appointment which was the first time that had ever happened, and it was the last time it happened until the 1940s. So a highly rare uh, situation here. But Leland was really upset about this. Leland says, well, you know what? Uh, you're too political, uh, and I'm not a political guy. I want to build a university. You've got to remember at the same time, he was not going to have any control over the situation. He was just part of a group of guys, the Board of Regents, and he was going to uh, not only kind of snub them and, you know, 
put his, his uh, thumb on his nose and waggle his fingers and say, who needs you anyway? He wanted to be in control of this situation. So he said, screw you. I'm going to take my money and I'm going to build my own university. And people were screaming, we can't, we don't need another university. Berkeley's the place to be. We don't have enough people to sustain that. It was a lot of criticism about that. So he said, too bad. I'm going to start Stanford anyway. And I'm not going to do it as a liberal arts university. What a bunch of fooey. I mean, history, literature, Latin, who needs all that kind of stuff? I'm going to build a technological academy. I would put it more plain East Bay words, if I might, a trade school. That is Stanford's legacy, and it becomes very important about what happens later on. And so um, getting back to this, this theme of the origin of Stanford kind of being the uh, seed that Silicon Valley grew up around. For example, uh, James Clark, one of the first tech billionaires, who Netscape founder, I believe, uh, he said that, quote, Stanford is probably the reason Silicon Valley is here. So what is that connection? How does Silicon Valley end up growing out of Stanford University? As I mentioned, he saw it as a trade school, someplace that would put together people who could build things like railroads and so on and so forth. He was very much into technology of his time. So this is um, something that it was very much part of Stanford University, which was not really considered much of any kind of university at all for its first many years. Within a generation after his death, there was a guy named Terman, who was the head of the electricity department at Stanford. Probably nobody ever heard of him or the electricity department or really even thought much about Stanford. It would have been, you know, like North Idaho Community College Teachers School kind of idea was the image that it had at the time. But Terman was a very bright guy. And Terman was saying, look, this is our legacy here. This is what our, this is sort of our appointment here is to be doing this sort of thing. We have all this land and we could be using this land, I think, a little bit more efficiently. I have these Two students in particular come to mind. Uh, I have trouble pronouncing the first name of one of them, but it doesn't really matter. They're the Varian brothers, and this is in the 1920s. The Varians are really smart guys. We should give them a little piece of this land. In fact, why don't we establish something? I have an idea. Let's call it the Stanford Research Park and let them kind of do their thing there and get some applications and get stuff out in the marketplace. And then, okay, let's give it a try. That worked out pretty good. You know, I have two other students who are pretty smart too. And they're having to work out of a garage. One's a real tall guy, another one's not so tall. One's named Hewlett, the other guy's named Packard. Let, let's do the same. This goes on. This leads, of course, to Shockley. This leads to Robert Noyce. This leads to the Silicon Valley. It is a direct line. And although there may be one or two people who might raise their eyebrows and say, well, I don't think that you can really connect those colored balloons together that easily, you absolutely can and should, because I will give you just this one proof in the pudding. Show me one other place in the world where this has happened. There's a reason that this happened at Stanford University. It is more to it than that, obviously. The Bay Area attracts people. California has a long legacy of attracting all kinds of great people from around the world who maybe don't fit into the, the dominant cultures or where they uh, come from. But it happened at Stanford for a reason, and it's because Leland Stanford lived. Before we get to my final question, I did want to come back to that foreboding tragedy that you mentioned a minute earlier. So I believe that you were going to start talking about uh, what happened to Jenny Stanford in the end. Is that correct? Yes, and I'll do this pretty quickly as well. So Jenny gets everything done. She can wipe her hands and say, 
uh, I've accomplished these insurmountable goals, which she really did and deserves tremendous credit for. I'm going to start traveling again, have a little bit of a life, relax. So she does some very adventurous traveling. She goes down the Nile. She goes uh, to Ceylon today, Sri Lanka. Uh, she comes home. Everything is, she goes to Australia, blah, blah, blah. She's doing pretty well. One evening, she's in her Knob Hill mansion, which burned down in the 1906 earthquake a year after she died. And she is not a well woman either, so she oftentimes uh, has a glass of water with some bicarbonate of soda. She takes a sip, spits out the, the water, and says, this tastes terrible. What's wrong with this? Well, a couple of her maids come in, they taste it, they spit it out. They say, we've got to bring this to a chemist. Turns out somebody has put rat poison in her water. Strychnine is the active ingredient there. Somebody's trying to kill her. So her advisors and her friends say to her, you got to get out of town. Why don't you get on a steamer and go off someplace you really like? Say, eh, Honolulu. That's really nice out there. There's this beautiful old hotel, uh, not so old at that time, but still beautiful, the Moana on Waikiki Beach. You can imagine how splendid it must have been in 1905. So she gets on the steamer. She goes there. She has a beautiful day. Uh, when she's staying there, they go out to the Pali Outlook. She has a light dinner. Uh, she goes walking out the pier out into the Pacific. You know, it's a balmy tropical night. Life is pretty good. She goes to her bed uh, early, an hour or two later. She's screaming in the hallway, leaning against the door jam. I've been poisoned. Two hours later, she's dead. She has been poisoned with pharmaceutical strychnine, a much bigger dose. A very in-depth, long Coroner's inquest with some of the best physicians of the time, chemists, forensic investigators, so on and so forth, uh, come to the conclusion, as does the, the, uh, inc uh, the coroner's jury, that there's no question, there's no dissent, it's 100%, she has been murdered. Now, Stanford University is still pretty rocky at this point, and they have this first president who is kind of a fabled guy, but has a lot of lust of his luster in recent years, David Starr Jordan. He can't afford another huge scandal like this. He gets on the first boat out of San Francisco, gets to Hawaii, and begins what is really perhaps one of the most successful cover-ups that I've ever read about, that I've ever investigated myself as a guy who was a reporter for 40 years. Just astonishing because he cannot afford to have another scandal there. And I'm going to leave uh, to your readers to go in there and read this astonishing story of the murder and the subsequent cover-up. But that's the end of that story. Yeah, no, that, that was a very fascinating chapter. Um, definitely got into a lot of things I had no idea about. And uh just a, a kind of a bizarre noirish end to, to you know what is just uh, a fabulous book about the history of business and economics and uh, entrepreneurialism in America. And before we go, we're history guys. We love to talk about the past, but this maybe is asking you to make a little bit of a prediction or look into the future a bit. And so um, I'm curious to know what you think about the fact that this story that you tell in this book of Stanford and the Big Four it kind of epitomizes the so-called Gilded Age. But, of course, that era of extreme inequality and uh, corruption was followed by the progressive era, which, which was really a reaction to all this excess. And, um, you know, it seems like now there, uh, 
you know, with the rise of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and people like that, there's kind of a maybe another resurrection of progressivism or, you know, even farther left politics, socialism policies, not only politicians, but also policies gaining traction around the country. And so I'm just wondering if looking back, as we've discussed in this conversation, history often repeats itself, if there's anything you can learn or anything we can learn from, you know, what followed the Gilded Age if to make maybe some educated guesses about what we might be looking at for the future of this country in the next couple of years? I think just about any historian will tell you, and I think anybody with any common sense will tell you, that trying to predict the future is a fool's game, right? I'm always reminded of um, the telephone company's reaction, uh, pardon me, the Western Union's reaction to the telephone, of what use is this invention? Or here's a great baby boomer one, forgive me all you younger listeners, uh, John Lennon's aunt saying, uh, the guitar's all well and good, John, but you'll never make a living out of it. Uh, I, so on and so forth. So I, I will not make any predictions, but I will say that history is, particularly in countries like the United States, but certainly not restricted to America, a story of reaction and counter-reaction. And yes, the progressive movement of the early 20th century was very much the reaction to the Gilded Age and the monopolies and the trusts of the late 19th century of which Stanford was an absolute leader in. If it was not for Stanford, there would be no Carnegie, there would be no Rockefeller, in fact. So who knows what's gonna happen? Um, I just hope that it sorts itself out well. And I will say this, there, this is my final word on this. I find the more that I learn about history, the more I read it, but the more I research the solace of history. And I keep saying this to my family that sometimes has their hair on fire and believe it's the end of days. This too shall pass. All right, let's leave it at that. Uh, Roland Walk, thank you so much for joining me today on East Bay yesterday. It's been a pleasure. The book is called American Disruptor, The Scandalous Life of Leland Stanford. And scandalous it is indeed. Um, just a scandal in every chapter in this book. So uh, go out and pick it up. It's out on UC Press. Thanks again for joining me today. Pleasure is totally mine. Thank you, Liam. Excellent. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday Q&A. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. If you want to see photos related to this episode, check out eastbayyesterday.com. Once again, massive thanks to the people supporting East Bay Yesterday through Patreon. I'm so very grateful to each and every one of you. This podcast can only exist through listener support. So if you want to keep hearing new episodes, please go to my website and throw down a few dollars if you can afford it. Big shout out to the following people who have become supporters over the last few months. Aaron Robb, Rachel, Emily Wheeler, Jocelyn Walker, Claire Zukin, Rebecca Saltzman, Jonah Weiner, Jennifer Kopp, Maya Markovich, Jason Smith, Bruce Sturd, Joanne Tillemans, Anne Davda, Andy Verone, Rebecca Silberman, Frank C. Espanto, Dan Keller, Gina Zayad, Jean Komatsu, Gail Dorney, Sue Mark, Fred Strauss, Scott Nelson, Andrew Berger, Lindsay Bischel, Jason Mays, Therese Noonan, Kristen Berger, Timothy Volmer, Craig Casebeer, Jeff Del Bono, Lauren Tompkins, 
Dorothy Lundgren, Sean Sexton, Cheryl Brown, Kirsten Lundgren, John Vogel, Kathleen McCarthy, Neil Gilfeder, Stephen Richard Lawton, Kelly Kuneik, Emily O, Sarah Hahn, and Abraham Svoboda. Thanks again. You guys rock. Don't forget to follow East Bay Yesterday on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you like this episode, spread the word about it. Tell a friend, post on social media, whatever. Please, every little bit of word of mouth helps. Okay, you can subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on Spotify, um, Overcast, you know, all the major podcast apps. And again, if you appreciate the show, please leave a rating and a review. Music for this episode came from local producer Justin Lee. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.